Kids safe, mother approved. You're listening to Voice America Kids. Stars could shine between the lines If you would let yourself go Find some place you know You can use your words, use your hands You can change the world, just pretend Express yourself, take a chance and you'll see It's time to express yourself, where teens talk and the world listens. Presented by Star Style Productions as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. You'll rock to an hour of adolescent fusion with your teen hosts and on-air reporters. Meet and chat with cool celebrities, exhilarating experts, and tenacious teens with subjects regarding anything and everything that you want to know. It's time to kick off the fun with our star teens. Welcome to Express Yourself. Morality is the basis of things, and truth is the substance of all morality. Mahatma Gandhi. Hello, and welcome to Express Yourself. We're a program by, for, and with creative young people. A platform to give teens a voice right here on the Voice America Kids Network. I'm Maria Wong, and the theme for our show today is the gift of morality. Now, Jobin Hundle is co-hosting with me for the first time, and I just wanted to welcome him here as a host. Thank you. I'm Joven Hundle. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions and brought to you as an outreach service of the Be The Star You Are charity, a top nonprofit honored by GuideStar and great nonprofits. Please visit bethestaryouare.org to make a tax-deductible donation and get more information about how you can be a part of our mission to increase literacy and positive message media. It's always a season for giving, so give big. Our reporter for today's first segment, Chelsea Pelchat, had a last-minute interview to be a camp counselor, so we're going to read what she was planning to talk about originally. Now, for this Gift of Morality edition of the segment Past Present, we'll be talking about the embodiment of morality within the totalitarian governments featured during the 20th century. After the First World War, Europe was in ruins. The terrible trauma of total war left people hoping for return to the pre-war ideals of peace, prosperity, and progress. However, that did not happen. Instead, what's known today as the Age of Anxiety prevailed throughout the continent, opening the doors for totalitarian dictatorships to rise into power. Governments in the Soviet Union and Italy marked a return to the concept of taking whatever measures necessary to consolidate their absolute authority, much like the absolutist regime of Louis XVI in France during the 1700s. In order to consolidate that level of control, Italian governments engaged in policies and purges that completely disregarded morality and cost millions of innocent citizens their lives. Now, the dictator we'll be looking at today is Adolf Hitler, who installed a fascist regime over Germany during the early 20th century. Now, fascist governments are characterized by their promise to improve the lives of ordinary workers, as well as intervening in the economy. They promoted the idea of a community united by nationalism, where all social classes would work together to build a unified country. Additionally, they championed the idea of racial homogeneity, in which each nation had to be purified of groups of people deemed unfit by the regime. When Hitler came to power, he promised a return to order with seemingly moderate policies. 
However, by 1933, Germany was a one-party dictatorship under his authority, and anyone who stepped out of line faced extremely dire consequences. Uh, for instance, Hitler used his band of three million stormtroopers, known as his secret police, or SS, to go from town to town, beating up Jews and anyone not of the Aryan master race he championed. Another form of his inhumane policies was Lebenstrom, forgive my pronunciation, the idea that the master race of pure-blooded Aryans needed space to grow and thrive. And the land for this was to be found to the east of Germany, inhabited by the subhuman Slavs and Jews. His complete disregard and persecution of the degenerate races that characterized much of his rule shows that in order to obtain his vision, he had to put aside all morals and values. So as you can see from what Chelsea has said throughout this, this idea of morality, principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong, or a set value system, were completely askewed within Hitler's regime. We can see with the terrible event, the Holocaust, that six million, six million Jewish people lost their lives with inhumane torture, concentration camps, labor camps, and breaking apart with their family. And that's not to mention all of the other people, whether it was the LGBTQ community or Slavish people who were also persecuted during this time. And what was really disappointing about this is that nobody really stepped in from the international scene because the seeds of the Holocaust were planted far before it actually occurred. In 1933, after he came to power, then he passed, him and the Nazis passed the Nuremberg Laws, which basically legalized systematic discrimination against Jews. And then follow that up five years later in 1938, you have Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, where the secret police, the Gestapo, the SS, as well as just ordinary German citizens started looting Jewish shops and all business centers and even homes. And so after World War I, when the League of Nations was founded, this League of Nations was supposed to stop anything like the Armenian Genocide or any further wars from happening, but we can see that that definitely did not happen, and it's very disheartening to see how the world did not intervene. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it is really disheartening, especially just viewing all of the current events or even past ones like the Rwandan genocide during when Bill Clinton was president and all these different things that are so immoral that have occurred and governments have not intervened or people have not. And, you know, I feel like in certain situations, um, including the Holocaust, for many people, it was sort of like watching a frog, the simil- the um, analogy of having a frog in a boiling pot of water, and it's only until he's about to die that he realizes that he's actually being burned. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's just, I think one quote that I remember, um, it's by Martin Niemöller, once again, sorry for my mispronunciation perhaps, but he was one of the prominent Protestant pastors who later emerged as a public foe of Adolf Hitler. And mm. one of his quotations really spoke out to me, when, especially when I was at the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and it was put in. And it says, quote, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one else left to speak for me. You know, that's a wonderful quote, and I think we can apply that to a lot of different contexts today, too, because we can see that a lot of these um, a lot of these amoral 
instances by governments, I mean, that really hasn't stopped now. We see even today in Somalia, for instance, where civil war has been raging on for over 25 years, there's a new regime in power every few years or even sometimes every few months. And innocent children and families are having their lives completely broken up and the world is just not stepping in. Also in Sudan and Africa, in 2011, when South Sudan was created as a new country, the world kind of just patted themselves on the back then and picked up and went home thinking that, I mean, everything's all right now. But as we can see, it definitely is not. Um, because, And I think a lot of this can be traced back to a century ago when we're t- speaking of uh, World War One and World War Two, when European countries basically just drew their own borders in Africa with no regard to the actual different ethnic groups that lived there. And so now we see in Darfur and Darfur and South Sudan that when these genocides are taking place even today, we really only have ourselves to blame for that, our own amoral actions. Yeah, and I think... Oftentimes we think, oh, it's the government. We can't do anything about it. But I really do think starting with like local root communities or grassroots movements where we're starting to talk about these issues. Like here, this is such an important step to give an, to give awareness to these issues like in Somalia or in Syria concerning the refugees and the bombings and just everything that has happened there. We really need to give it attention so that the media, different new com- mainstream news outlets will be able to give um to give the deserved awareness that it should have so that then we can start to have this pressure towards the government to sort of change these things. Definitely. And I'm actually really glad that you brought up awareness because that's another big issue. So also a hundred years ago when the Armenian genocide happened today, Turkey is still refusing to call its own actions and a genocide. And even when various countries try and recognize that as a genocide, funnily enough, the state of California actually did so, um, then Turkey tries to cut off foreign relations or at least, you know, reduce their involvement, which is really disheartening to see that they won't even admit that their actions in the past were a genocide. Awareness is definitely a huge issue in these cases. Yeah, no, exactly. And I feel like oftentimes it's really up to like the people in the government to really be cognizant of the actions that are being taken. And even though it might be something around the world, just in your Facebook feed or something you see in the newspaper, you're like, oh, yeah, that happened. Sure, there was the chemical bombing of Syria and people are disheartened in that moment, but often there's no further action taken from that. Though you might be disheartened by the news, oftentimes we don't donate money to go to these charities to help out or speak about it on social media or push congressmen and different senators to go and fix these issues or find different ways to do that. And I really think that's such an important step going beyond just learning about it, but also talking to your local government or starting new charities or looking into charities that you can donate and see ways that you can actually have direct action and help. Definitely. And I'm actually glad you started talking about politicians because I remember just uh, during, I believe it was the 2014 congressional elections, um, a nearby district around Sacramento area, the representative that represented that district, he was running for re-election. And somebody asked him, as he is Indian-American, they asked him about the 1984 genocide of my religion, the Sikhs. Mm -hmm. Um, And he 
didn't exactly respond, you know, the way people wanted him to, not really talking about it being a genocide, not really talking about recognizing it. And so that's another thing we need to do, that we need to vet our politicians to see what exactly are their stances on these issues and how can we ensure that they will be doing the things that they, you know, that they say they're going to do or just taking the moral action. Exactly. And I feel like it's so important because oftentimes when people are voting, they are so um, uninformed that they're often going, oh, well, he's a Democrat or he's a Republican. So therefore, I'm going to vote for him due to these things. However, I really feel like we really do need to, as you said, look further into it and really talk to them constantly and bring up issues that are important to us that we feel go against our morality. We really need to make this a widespread issue, not just within our community, but outwards, whether it's through social media or once again, writing letters or any other forms of media that you can use to really spread your message. I really feel will just really help with making our governments and our world just a better place. So thank you so much, Joven, for this great conversation. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Support our show in these amazing segments by donating to the Be The Star You Are charity that brings you this program. For more info on how to do this, go to bethestarur.org and follow our blog. I'm Maria Wong. And I'm Joven Hundel. Get ready for a fun event coming up on May 13th, the Morag Affair. More information is available at our website, bethestarur.org. And don't go anywhere as we continue our fascinating talk. Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. You're listening to Voice America Kids, now with 33% more active ingredients and no artificial coloring. You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Welcome back to our uplifting, inspiring program. I'm Maria Wong. You are listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids Network, brought to you by the Be The Star You Are charity. For this segment, we are discussing the gift of morality. And I'm Joven Hundel. Today we have Colonel Charles Causey with us. Colonel Causey is an active duty Army chaplain who works for the Chief of Chaplains in Washington, D.C. A recipient of the Bronze Star Medal for his actions in Iraq, he is also a marriage counselor and conference trainer. Married with four children who keep him very busy, Charles is also an author for Abingdon Press and Nav Press slash Tyndall House. He has written several literary works, including the victorious 536-page Civil War novel, In Danger Every Hour, and a chilling moral thriller detailing the Holocaust titled The Lion and the Lamb. He loves to run, study history, and write about interesting people of faith. Uh, Welcome, Charles. 
Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, so Charles, you've had a variety of professions throughout your life from being in the army, marriage counselor, and now an author. So focusing on your book right now, did you always know that you wanted to be an author? There was always something inside of me. I was always writing little short stories or a play for my kids. Um, I didn't know that I would write an entire novel until I was about 40 years old. And I just thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write a Civil War novel. And it took me a couple of years, and I finally got it published. So, oh, Wow. Nice. And so uh, can you give our listeners some insight on what The Wine and the Lamb is about? Sure, I'd love to. Um, the Lion and the Lamb is a book about the Holocaust in World War II. It mostly covers the last two years. And um, from 1942 to 1944, 1945, when uh, Germany collapsed. And it's about two people, Albert Speer and Corey Ten Boom. Albert Speer was considered one of Hitler's best friends. He was on his cabinet, and he made a lot of strategic and national decisions with Hitler, and he was with him right up to the end in, in his bunker. Uh, Corey Ten Boom was just a regular person growing up in Holland, and she, um, she was taken, she, she was hiding Jews because they were starting to disappear from her street, and she had sympathy for them. So she was taken, her whole family was taken by the Gestapo, and she uh, ended up having to go to a concentration camp. And her life story is really magnificent. So what I do in The Lion and the Lamb is I compare, I go back and forth between Albert Speer and Corey Tim Boom. But I also weave in a third story about the gas chambers, the secret operations that um, Heinrich Himmler was doing uh, for the extermination centers for Hitler. So I think people will find um, a lot of different um, things that they like in a novel and also in a biography when they read The Lion and the Lamb. For sure. I feel like it has so many different aspects, both sort of this compare and contrast of two different people in the Holocaust, along with the secret operation. So this obviously had a lot of historical context behind it. So what kind of research did you have to do to write this book? Well, I had to start by really understanding the main characters. So I read every... um, autobiography that I could get my hands on. Corey Tim Boom had written many books about her experiences in her life. Albert Speer mostly had written just two. But I also found a, uh, books about the, um, the characters, the, the biographical sketches that people spent a lot of research. So I read all of those books. I also uh, studied journals, newspaper clippings, um, war stories, people's uh, personal diaries. And, uh, for instance, for Albert Speer, he had a secret uh, diary. He wasn't supposed to uh, keep a diary in prison. He was in prison for 20 years. So he'd have to smuggle out his notes in his underwear every night and hand them to somebody wow. who smuggle them out to a friend who ended up uh, putting them together in a book for him. And um, that's, that was a great resource for me on his uh, years in prison. Oh, wow. And so could you give us some insight into like your writing process? Like maybe how long did it take to write the book or anything like that? Sure. I, um, when I get the initial idea, it, it took for the line and lamb, it took about three years and, uh, from, uh, kind of concept to completion. Um, and so what I do is I, I do a lot of reading for the first three months, three or four months. And I just take notes um, and then when I enter into a writing phase, um, that goes on for a year and a half or so for this book. And, um, and then I start getting my manuscript 
reviewed by people, and I rewrite a lot of portions. So I, I do first draft, second draft, third draft, tenth draft, twentieth draft, and um, it's really a, um, a, a. There's about 25 people that help me write this book uh, through reviewers and editors and people that uh, provided maps for the book and and things like that. It's quite a process. Yeah, that definitely is, I feel like, such a thorough process, but it really needs to be, I feel like, for any historical fiction book, especially one concerning the Holocaust, that we really include all of these necessary details. So I really do think um, that's quite admirable, and just all of the research process sounds so interesting. So relating back to the book, I was very intrigued by the title, The Lion and the Lamb, because usually when I think of the lion, I think of it as a very aggressive figure, one that is one that is um, just very predatory, while the lamb is usually more passive and gentle, known to sort of go in the flock. And that was just making me think of the two characters in your book. And did you believe one was specifically the lion and one was the lamb, or is it something completely else? <laughs> that That is a, it's a great question. And what I wanted readers to do was to struggle with who is a lion and who is lamb yeah. <laughs> through the book. And also to change their mind many times. And um, the reason I chose it is that it does have a type of kind of an apocrypha or a a biblical kind of tone to it, theme to it. So it might intrigue some people thinking, what is he trying to talk about there? But obviously, Albert Speer was connected to Hitler. And Hitler was known as the Lion of, of Germany and the leader of the Third Reich, the Fuhrer. And um, Corey could be seen, you know, she was a woman that was fighting against the entire German army by smuggling families every day. So she could be considered the lamb. But what I wanted readers to struggle with by the end of the book is who really had that heart of a lion and who really maybe was kind of wimpy like a lamb, you know, and it could go back and forth. And I thought it could lead to several discussions between friends, maybe that have both read the book. Oh, wow. And so, speaking of, you know, these very complex characters, how would you compare it to the theme of today's show, The Gift of Morality? Well, um, that's an excellent question. I, um, the reason I was excited to come on the program was that I really think the underlying basis for The Lion and the Lamb shows two kinds of lives. It shows a life in Corey Tim Boom that's highly principled, Highly, um, morals are very important to her. She wants to do the right thing. In fact, she struggles with when the Gestapo asked her if she was hiding Jews in her house. She really struggled with whether to lie or not because she thought if she lied, she wouldn't be a moral person. But her father helped her see that, you know, it's a greater love um, for the people that you're hiding than, you know, you wouldn't want to give that love to the Gestapo that it actually is a high set of morals to lie for them because you would protect their life. But she really struggled with that. She was concerned. You find in Albert Speer, who is uh, closely associated with Hitler, um, he didn't have a lack of morals like Himmler, Goebbels, Goring, um, Bormann. But at the same time, he didn't have that high principle where he really wanted to do the right thing by people. He really wanted to know what God wanted them to do. He never thought about those kind of things. Corey grew up in a religious home, and they were very concerned about living an ethical life and a right life. And going back to that, how do you think your religious background and just experience in the Army have shaped how this book is written or 
the research process and all of that? Yes. Um, well, I think I obviously, because I'm an army chaplain and a Christian army chaplain, I was drawn to Corey's story. I, I'd heard it all my life, how she hid Jews. And she did that for two years and she helped hundreds of families. In fact, the Jewish community in the 60s recognized her as a righteous among the Gentiles and they planted a tree with her in Israel. And um, she was a very uh, wonderful person. I, um, you know, I, I would hope, hope at some time to do that good. I had a friend ask me just recently, I don't know what I would do in the case of World War II and Hitler. He goes, would I side more with Albert Speer or would I be more like Corey Tim Boom? And um, so I think my background as a military chaplain and a pastor um, and a counselor and helping marriages and being a conference speaker, I, I, I really hope that I would do the right thing in a tough situation because I counsel people on right and wrong all the time. Does that answer your question? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and so... While doing your research for this book, so obviously you were very familiar with the story, but was there anything that you learned while doing research that surprised you? Um, there were several things. Um, one is just the, um, the real unspeakable evil of the Nazis, but the fact that they were human beings um, just like us just like you and I. I mean, they cared about their families. They cared about their career. They cared about their government, their nation, their standing um, in the military. And, um, you know, they were friends with their neighbors. I, I, I would suspect if they were in this day and age, they would have barbecues and Fourth of July picnics, those kind of things. But at the same time, they were tied into this regime that was just utterly corrupt, utterly evil. And I, I almost think it was like the frog in the kettle. It just... One step after another step after another step, and pretty soon they were doing evil deeds that they had no idea were so, it was such an atrocity. Um, I think if I could keep talking on this issue, one thing that was very surprising was even in Nuremberg, they had the 22 or 23 top cabinet members of Hitler that they were trying for war crimes against humanity. Everyone but Speer was in coalition that they all still did the right thing because they were following the laws of their land. Even after they saw videos of um, buildings that were stuffed with people and burned to the ground and the ashes of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, they still held to the fact that they did the right thing because Hitler had ordered them to do that. And Speer was the one that um, he said, I'm sorry. And he said, this was wrong. And there's a morality above what the nation might ask you to do. But that was very striking to me that, that people still held their ground. Yeah, Thank for sure. I, I feel like that is just, especially just Albert Speer and actually being cognizant of what he has done and the issue of morality. I feel like it's so important and it's definitely throughout your novel. So unfortunately, we are out of time. We will be sure to continue our segment with Charles, so please stay tuned. Also, be sure to check out his website, www.cowsybooks.com, for more information on him and his novel, The Lion and the Lamb. I'm Maria Wong. And I'm Joven Hundle. Please visit our radio site at expressyourselfteenradio.com for photos, descriptions, links, blogs, and more. Also, please visit our charity site at bethestarur.org and watch our fun and informative videos at youtube.com slash bethestarur. Stay right here as we continue our amazing discussion on morality. 
show the world your smile. Be the star you are. If you are ready to be inspired, energized, and edutained, you've come to the right place with our two life-changing programs at be the star you are Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's our lifestyle show, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. On Tuesdays at noon Pacific, teens talk and the world listens on Express Yourself Teen Radio on Voice America Kids. Come play with us at BeTheStarYouAreRadio.com. We don't care how you got here. We're just glad you showed up. You're listening to Voice America Kids. You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Thank you for staying with us here at Voice America Kids. I'm Maria Wong, and our program is Express Yourself, giving youth across the world a voice to be listened to. Today on Express Yourself, we are discussing the gift of morality. And we are back with Colonel Charles Cowsey, an active duty Army chaplain, author, husband, father of four, marriage counselor, and conference trainer. Now let's jump right into it. So, Colonel Cowsey, what exactly does morality mean to you? Wow, deep question. <laughs> um, I guess um, morality for me means that there is an ethic, there's a universal code that's higher than ourselves. Um, that all people um, would agree upon the standard. For instance, um, we all agree that it wouldn't, it would be immoral to turn around in battle and run away from your enemy, even if your commander is telling you to go forward. Um, we all agree that, you know, in some cultures, um, you can have one wife, there might be a culture where you can have two wives, but we all agree that you shouldn't just have whatever woman you want. Um, there's certain, you know, we, we all believe that murder is wrong. So, you know, morality for me is that this, this universal code that applies to all people at all time in all cultures. That's what I think it means. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I really do feel like it is a set value system, which we were talking about in one of our first segments, how it really is a principle of what is right and what is wrong. And most people, no matter, as you said, whatever culture it is, there are definitely things that are right and that are wrong. So going back to your novel, The Lion and the Lamb, I was curious on why on really, I know you knew about Corey's story earlier on, but what really urged you to write this novel in the first place? Well, when I, um, I was familiar with Corey's story and I, I began reading about Albert Speer and the more I read, the more intrigued I was. So I read more. I read his secret diaries. I read, um, I read the book he wrote called Inside the Third Reich. That's what he's most famous for. Um, and I read a, a very large book, almost a thousand pages about Spears life, very in-depth, exhaustive book that probably a lot of people wouldn't <laughs> finish. In fact, it, but it was so interesting to me. I just couldn't wait to get back into it every day. And I thought, what if 
you know, to show people a contrast of lives. What if I showed them someone who was the best friend of Hitler with somebody who was down in the streets um, in Harlem, Holland, right, right by Amsterdam, who was really uh, taken by the fact that her neighbors, her friends, were being taken by the Gestapo and disappeared. And they were hearing rumors about death camps. And she really wanted to do something about it, and she wanted to rescue them. And for a period of two years, you know, they, they built a secret room uh, in her house that they would hide Jews if anybody would come to the door that um, was not one of the ones that were working with them. And I just thought it would be so intriguing to compare those two lives. From In the military, we have um, three scenes. We have the strategic level, which is the national level where the president is and his advisors. And we have the operational level, which is in each nation, high command. And then we have the tactical level, which is the boots on the ground, people that are kicking indoors or the right, right down in the fight. And I thought, you know, I'd take Spear from the strategic level and compare him with, compare him with Corey's life in the tactical level. And it would be very interesting because you can see how Spear's policies impacted Corey um, because of the decisions he made with his armaments plants. And I could talk a little bit more about that if, we, if you want. Uh, yeah, go for it. Okay, so for instance, Spear was in charge of bringing in all the labor. He had about a million laborers that they, it was actually slaves that they, when they would conquer a nation, they would enslave all the males to come in and work in his factories. Oh, wow. wow. And so Corey, she was taken to a concentration camp where she worked for the Siemens plant and other um, in industry sites outside of the concentration camp. They would march them there every morning. So she was a recipient of what Spears' work was doing up at the strategic level. And she had to work with people from Poland and Ukraine and Czechoslovakia and people that didn't speak the same language. And it was all because Spear was gathering as many workers as he could so that he can build as many airplanes as he could and radio parts and those kind of things. So uh, in many ways, Spear, um, his life intersects Corey's life on a daily level in those concentration camps when she was uh, going to work in his factories. Yeah, it really is interesting to think how one individual's actions and decisions can really affect a whole nation as we see in the Holocaust and other tragic events throughout history. So I'm really curious about Albert and why he remained best friends with Hitler, even though he felt like Hitler had this evil within him that he could be without a conscience. That, that, that is a wonderful question, and I think it just goes down to the very core of who we are as human beings. I think even people that grow up in a terrible home, maybe they have terrible parents, um, there's still a love there. Um, there's, a, there's an affection for them that they will carry the rest of their life. No matter how bad it was, there, there's almost like a bonding that uh, because of that time spent with them, they can't shake. And there were many times in Spears' life that he wanted to shake Hitler. He knew there were certain things that were wrong, and he was so frustrated that last year of the war because he could see that things were going against him. The Americans were coming in on the west, the Russians were coming in on the east, and he knew the war was lost, but Hitler would never admit it. And Speer could see that everything was going to destroy Germany. But he was so, he's still on that very human basic level, and that's, that's the thing I said that, you know, the Nazis were people just like you and I at their central human personalities. And he just, he carried a love with it. And right at the end, even after Hitler took his life, he pulls out a picture of him and Hitler and he just weeps. And it just showed him that he really did love the man, even though he hated his policies, he hated what happened to his nation. But he just couldn't shake that friendship that they developed over the, in the 30s before the war started. 
Wow, that's very fascinating. And so with the lion and the lamb, what are, you know, some of the central themes that you're trying to get across in this novel? Well, um, the, the easiest one to see is um, what we've already discussed is living a life of morals and trying mm-hmm. to do the right thing with your neighbors and your friends and your family. And then also really not caring about that, trying to be more self-serving to gain as much land as you can. Or for instance, one of the people in the book that I cover a lot is Herman Goring. And it's so interesting because he's in charge of the entire Air Force. And he's one of them. He's a number two man in the state. After if Hitler were to die, Goring would take over. But most of the time in his life, he was gone hunting at, at, at one of his cabins or one, he was at one of his castles. For instance, when the bombs dropped on Dresden, Goring was nowhere to be found um, because he was on a hunting expedition in the Scorified Forest. So um, there's just, it, 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 he was, he just lived a life of indulgence. He, uh, he really didn't care about people. He really didn't, um, he really didn't do anything for the common good. Even though at the beginning of his life, he was a war hero. He flew with the Red Baron uh, in World War I. And Hitler used him because of his popularity. But Hitler surrounded himself with these corrupt, um, decayed individuals like Himmler and Goebbels and Goring that really didn't care about right and wrong or, or anything about morals. Um, whereas you look at the life of Corrie ten Boom, her entire family cared about those things. And their best friends cared about those things. Yeah, and I feel like it's always so disheartening to see people who are in such high positions of power, who really have no regard for anybody who they're ruling over. So what would you say today are the ramifications for the youth of Germany based on its history of, um, of just not having empathy? Well, I, I really hope that, you know... I, if you're specifically talking about um, the German people and the next generations that are coming up, is, is that your question? Or yes. About worldwide. Okay. Um, I really hope that, that new leaders will arise that will um, understand the difference between right and wrong and want to serve the people, serve the populace, serve the common good, serve humanity and do the right thing by their neighbors. And even in the government as the president doing the right thing um, with all their decisions that um, that'll give the young people hope and they'll have a new history. Uh, and in fact, their history, you know, what I would encourage them, their history's not written yet, that the young people there should really, you know, they, they're going to shape what's going to happen the next hundred years. So that's what I would say. How can we ensure that something like the Holocaust will never happen again? And how can we be empowered today to really ensure this morality of our world and of our governments? Yeah. Well, I, I think we have to unite um, under a common banner of um, peace, love, dignity for all people. Um, what I was talking about, a morality, uh, a universal ethic that supersedes nations. I think there's certain things that all nations um, can embrace even if they're considered, for instance, right now, enemies. Uh, for instance, the United States and North Korea is in the news almost every day now. But I know that 99% of North Koreans um, probably, you know, they, they, they work very hard and they do the right thing by their neighbors and their bosses and their families. 
And we're very, you know, just that understanding that we're one people and we're very much the same. Just like I said, we, I can relate to some of those Nazis and that they, some of their struggles on a human level. It's the same thing with nations all over the world. And we just have to, you know, rise above our trials and come together as a human people uh, uh, for the human good. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of what you just said. And I find it really intriguing with your military service and background, um, just how that has really shaped your morality and your different views. And I was wondering how you feel like as part of the military service, um, what, how has that shaped what you think we can do or just how you view the world in general? Hmm. Well, I've, um, I've been in the in the army for 27 years now. And four years before that, I was in ROTC at the university of Colorado in Boulder in the 80s. So I've had, uh, over 30 years. And I think, um, I, I almost wish every person had to serve a little bit. And the reason is it, there's something to be learned from getting your head shaved and, uh, having to do pushups and getting in trouble and, um, being held accountable. Uh, it's almost like some, sometimes people feel like they have this, these mean parents in their life and they're actually drill sergeants um, that they have to live with. But there's so much to learn from those early experiences in the army. When you all go and shoot together, you have to be very careful about safety. Um, your weapons have to be pointed up and down range at all times. Um, you care about your battle buddy. Uh, going to combat, I've never seen in my own life and the people I worked with, um, the love for each other that you have. And it, it's really true in war, um, most people are there for the person on their left and right, and that's why they're fighting. It, it's not exactly what the president or the national leaders are telling them about. They want to have victory and survive because of those people on their left and right, and they're called their battle buddies. Um, so there's so many great things, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, courage. Um, those are things that you can learn by serving in the military, and I, I know that my service has shaped uh, me and it shaped my worldview and it's also shaped why I wrote the book The Lion and the Lamb and what I want readers to experience through it. I want them to see a life of morals and values compared to a life of somebody that is um, swayed to do the wrong thing. Yeah and I really feel like your book really captures this and will really empower people beyond this and just with more knowledge and thank you so much for all of your years of service. Unfortunately we are out of time. Thank you so much, Charles, for talking with us. It was a great conversation. Everybody, please be sure to check out his website at www.cowsybooks.com and see his brand new video on that website about his novel, The Lion and the Lamb. I'm Maria. And I'm Joven. During the break, be sure to check out our charity site at btsya.org, which stands for Be The Star You Are, a 501c3 literacy and positive media charity. More info under events at our website at, again, btsya.org. Please also visit expressyourselfteenradio.com for more information about our show. And when we come back, we'll, consider, we'll continue our inspiring conversation on the gift of morality. Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. 
Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. Sometimes we may sound strange, but remember, we're just kids with opinions. You're listening to Voice America Kids. You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Welcome back. Thanks for staying with us here at Voice America Kids. Our program is Express Yourself, and I'm Maria Wong. Today's hour is all about morality. Today, my wonderful fellow co-host, Jobin, will be discussing how morality relates to the progression of the human race in his segment, World Watch. Thank you. Now, we live in a rapidly advancing world, complete with groundbreaking new discoveries every year. Whether in regards to outer space or animal anatomy, an exciting and endless set of fields are being developed every day. This will give each and every one of us many different opportunities and new ways to succeed for teams around the world. However, because these fields are either new or finding new discoveries, one can find a lot of gray areas in terms of the law. A lot of these fields are charged topics that will evoke outcry or certain responses from people, and we have to respect that. Something that we must not lose sight of is that these new findings and subsequent laws have to be based off what is morally right. For example, space mining is an industry sure to be a big name in the coming decades. It has tons of potentials, as in trillions of dollars worth of potential, and so there are already multiple companies lining up and trying to take advantage of this. The basis of asteroid mining is that the millions and millions of asteroids in our solar system can be harvested to fulfill needs for valuable resources here on Earth that are sought by customers or used by manufacturers. Luxembourg is currently the only nation with laws in place regarding space mining. However, I certainly feel that there should be some sort of international conference, as there are definitely plenty of issues to be resolved. And this is where the morality part comes in. How exactly are these asteroids going to be mined? What are we going to do with the remains that we don't need back home? Should private corporations be allowed to own asteroids? Does the government have any claim? And how will this affect industries and workers here on Earth? We can answer these questions from a moral standpoint to ensure the greatest amount of good is done for the greatest amount of people, or utilitarianism. And another very broad field to keep an eye on is biotechnology. Now, this industry is only growing and growing from here and encompasses many different specific endeavors. A lot of these are already hot political topics, such as genetically modified organisms or GMOs. But then again, there are also others such as cloning that will only become more prominent in the following years. Now, speaking of GMOs first, these especially need to have regulations codified into law, with these laws once again being based off what is morally right. Now, for example, companies that develop GMO seeds often price them at a very high price. 
And I personally believe this practice should be outlawed since GMOs produce a higher harvest, which is needed since our growing population mandates more output. And this is along with the fact that we can provide other vitamins. This is the biggest reason to have GMOs. We can simply just grow more of them. And morally, it makes sense to sell these at cheaper prices. We want everyone to be fed, so obviously we should ensure that farmers have the necessary tools to help us feed everyone. And so I do believe that from a moral standpoint, we do need to have the government regulate uh, the dissemination of GMO seeds. And another issue with GMOs is that some individuals simply do not want to eat them because they believe that they might not be truly healthy or safe. And then others are skeptical on how GMOs will affect crop rotation cycles and the soil. They also fear that since many GMOs are the same genetically, one infection can decimate the whole population. This would lead to starvation since the harvest for that crop that year would be little, if not nothing. And something like this would definitely affect California, where I live. All these reasons support the argument that we need to make more stringent laws for these industries to extensively test GMOs before deploying them to make sure that they are safe, that they are healthy. Now, GMOs aren't going to go anywhere. They're being used, they've, they've been used for decades now, and we've all been consuming them, and they're also being used to help people in need in third world countries. As they become more widespread, they do need to become more regulated with laws that, once again, are based off of morals. And furthermore, with another biotechnology topic, cloning, this is another very controversial topic. I would argue that this is actually one that is tough to approach from a logical standpoint, as I'm sure many people have values that might just support one side or the other. And thus, when laws are drafted to govern this area of study, they need to accurately represent what people, what most people want after arguments have been made on both sides, which is a moral tactic that we can hopefully apply to many of our, poli of, of our other policies as well. Now, anyway, I just thought bringing in the law would be an interesting spin on our gift of morality theme, and I'm very curious to see what happens regarding this in the years to come. Yeah, likewise. It should be very exciting to see where all of these different ventures go and really how they affect us. So anyways, Joven, why do you think that these laws need to be passed for these new fields? A great question. So I believe that we do need laws for this, mainly just because nothing is really defined yet since either these fields will be too new or they're discovering new things. And making sure that everything is clearly defined will be beneficial to everyone involved. The government can ensure that industries are being regulated fairly. And those industries should be happy that their rights and discoveries will be protected. Yeah, and I feel like, um, especially this, because right now I'm taking a course called AP Environmental Science. And one of the main principles is full cost pricing, which means that we include everything that was made in the process to get there. Because for gas or for other things that are very unsustainable, that usually is not the case, which leads to these artificial prices and just all these other detrimental effects. And I really feel like they mentioned time and time again, which I really agree with, just like you, that we really do need these regulations in place, especially for new fields where not everybody might be sure what's happening. So I feel like having laws and regulations while also having education and awareness programs, they're both really integral for us not only, only learning more. Like it would be really great if we could learn more about GMOs, but it would also be able to protect us from um, harmful effects that we might have. Right, right. And, 
yeah, one of these, I, yeah, I feel like GMOs, cloning, biotechnology, they're all can be very controversial. I know for sure where I live, GMOs are definitely a hot topic just because people are like, what's in my food? But already we see that GMOs, as you said, have been used for such a long time. And there's no law requiring that we need to actually include, like food companies need to include that there's GMOs in their food. So that's right, just right. really interesting. So what do you think would happen if something like this, like the issue of GMOs or cloning would go to court and we don't have laws regarding it? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So I do think that you could see something along the lines of, you know, the O.J. Simpson trial. So at that time, DNA, nobody exactly knew what it was. They didn't know what it was, what it does, what it can prove. And so when one side was presenting DNA evidence, as in, this means this, this means that he was here at this time, that this happened and this happened, the jury didn't exactly know what to make of it. And so by passing laws like this, we can ensure that more awareness is spread of these issues. So we can see that in potential court cases, if we do actually have laws about this, um, the jury can make a more informed and educated decision. Yeah, exactly. I feel like this all goes back to really making sure that the public is aware of what's happening and is informed, whether that's through these new laws and regulations, perhaps even education programs or just promoting it on social media. Because I feel like for so many millennials out there and teenagers like us, we really get most of our information from the internet or from social media or for friends and Facebook, that type of thing. So I really feel like that's super necessary, having these different programs and just, I feel, yeah, it's just really essential. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, you know, another industry that we might need something like this is just pharmacy medications. Another issue that we can approach from a moral standpoint as well. It's not just newer industries. Yeah, for sure. And unfortunately, we're out of time. So thank you so much, Joven, for this great conversation. And it was great co-hosting with you for the first time. And anyways, we offer thanks to Star Style Productions, Cynthia Bryan, Be The Star You Are, and our Voice America Kids crew, especially our engineer, Matt. Thanks to our guests and reporters from across the world. And thank you, our listeners, for making us a top-rated program. I'm Maria Wong. And I'm Joven Hundel. You have been listening to Express Yourself, an on-air global community where teens talk and the world listens. For info on our creative community, go to btsya.org and our main site at bethestarur.org. Until next week, remember, be kind, stay in tune with your morality, and be here. Speak up, speak out, and express yourself. Thanks for joining us this week on Express Yourself, produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, be sure to visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern, when teens talk and the world listens on the Voice America Kids channel. Until then, remember to express yourself. Stars could shine. Between the lines If you would let yourself